0: This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our guest today, Francis Bennett. Francis is a former Trappist monk. Uh, Francis, at one point in his life, had a major shift in consciousness and uh, has since that time uh, been deeply trying to understand that experience and share it with others. Uh, He runs an organization, Finding Grace at the Center, Francis, thank you so very much for coming on our show today. Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Francis, you seem to be in uh, good company with people like Thomas Merton, who were uh, monks in the Catholic tradition and then um, expanded their range of expertise and influences. Um, And in your case, um, it was precipitated, it seems like, by uh, an inner spontaneous experience. Maybe you can give us a little, uh, or give the listeners a little background uh, into your own path and how you came to be doing the work you're doing today.
2: Sure. Um, Well, like you say, I was a Trappist monk. I was at the monastery of Thomas Merton actually, at Gethsemane, uh, long before... Uh, long after him, however, <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite that old. He died in 68, yeah. so when I was like 8 years old. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know Thomas Merton personally. But um, I got interested in his books um, from a high school uh, English teacher who told me I was writing a lot of poetry at the time, and he told me that my poetry reminded him of a writer that he was doing a dissertation on. And he said he, is, he had been a monk, and so he got me reading, um, first the seven story mountain. And then I read other books by Merton and spanning the whole sort of 27 years of his writing, um, which also got into comparative religion and Buddhism and so on. So, um, so that was sort of spurred my interest. And then I ended up entering Gethsemane at the age of 22. And, um, because of Merton kind of being a trailblazer with sort of, um, religious dialogue and things. There was a lot of interreligious dialogue going on at Gethsemane at my time there, uh with Buddhist monks and the Dalai Lama came, to Not and people like that. And um so I got very interested in Buddhism and then um studied Zen with several Zen teachers. Uh Sung who was a Korean Zen master, founder of the Providence Zen Center and the Kwang Ang uh School of Zen, hmm. Korean School of Zen in the United States and then Charlotte Joko Beck who was a a Soto from a Soto Zen background and uh, founded San Diego Zen Center. So that was my first sort of foray into Buddhist practice. And then later on, I actually only did Buddhist. I did Buddhist practice for probably about 10 years with these two different teachers. But then for about a good 20 years, I did Vipassana practice through the, um, like Insight Meditation Society lineage, and eventually uh, connecting with Bhante Gunaratana, Hanepala Gunaratana, who's the the, uh, author of Mindfulness in Plain English, a kind of well-known Vipassana-related book. So I got very deeply into uh, Vipassana practice and then was asked to teach by Bhante. So I actually taught Vipassana for a time. And um, so over the years, I had many different little sort of opening spiritual awakenings, you could say. And then in 2010, had a kind of major sort of paradigm shift, I would say, that really turned everything on its head. And most of my theology and religious and spiritual ideas flew out the window (laughs) after that. So that's a little synopsis, like a Reader's Digest condensed
0: version of my background. Francis, when you had that transformative experience, Was it something that was experienced by the senses, by the eyes, by the ears? Uh, Or was it something that was um, more internal? Uh, Was it a a deep insight uh, on an intellectual basis? Was it that involved emotion? How how can you uh, best describe specifically what that experience was and maybe continues to be? I would say it was all of the above. <laughs> it was um, I was in church in the middle of Mass,
2: actually, and um, I, we were celebrating Mass, the community was celebrating Mass, and there were a lot of lay people, and people filled, filled the church, and I was up in the front with the other members of the community, <laughs> and usually what we would do is uh, we would circle around the altar, and we'd all receive the, the brothers and fathers that were... You know, part of the mass that day would all circle around the altar and they'd put the Eucharist, the communion wafer, uh, in our hands and then we would take communion and then we would go distribute communion to the people. And so, uh, when they put the, the host in my hand, I, um, I had a very strange, uh, feeling of presence. Uh, stronger than usual, just, I've, I've often felt experiences of God's presence over the years since I was really a child, but in that moment it was very, very strong, and I even, there was a kind of physical phenomena of light, of seeing light kind of emanating from the Eucharist and sort of enveloping me and enveloping the whole Church, and my sense was that it was going out into the world, and, and then and the, the revelation that I had with that kind of phenomenal, uh, experience was that this light, this presence actually filled everything that existed. And that, that was what was kind of revealed to me. I, the way I put it into words in, in my book and in when I speak about it is that God is in everything and everything is in God. And that was uh, mm-hmm. kind of what I saw in that moment. And um, that's kind of never left. I mean, that that realization has... Remained, and then, and then there's been other dimensions of that that have sort of been revealed and have unfolded for me since then. Can
0: and, we, um, uh,
1: Francis, I'm curious about the experience itself of that initial uh, moment in the church. Could you, do you have any sense of um, how long it lasted? Were you in a position uh, where you
2: had to speak
1: or? Uh, conduct, uh, part of the service. Uh,
2: how I was supposed to, I was supposed to go on and conduct part of the service and I was supposed to not speak. I wasn't preaching that day, but I was supposed to give communion out and I couldn't do it. Mm. I, I actually had to go to the side, uh, of the, into the choir stalls and sit down because I was so totally <laughs> kind of overwhelmed by the experience. Um, how long the experience lasted? Well, <laughs> I would say it's still going on, so well, I mean, a long time. I mean, uh, at,
1: that t- at that moment, before you said, i got to go sit down, was it instantaneous, or uh, did it have some duration and time that you're aware of? Uh,
2: you mean just the phenomena of seeing the light? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that continued on for the rest of the Mass. I was really aware of a, a light phenomena of light, And, um, yeah. And for, I would say a good, oh, probably seven, eight months after that, I really, it really kind of struck me dumb in a way (laughs) I was, um, you know, I, I really was a lot more kind of withdrawn and I, I just felt like I needed to enter into that as fully as I could. So I, I really just like sat in my room a lot and, did a lot of sitting and just kind of entered into the depths of that presence or that, that sense of God being in everything and um, just kind of marinated in it for close to a year before I eventually, there was a, a kind of further sort of shift out of that that helped me integrate back more into the world. But it, luckily I was a monk, so it wasn't so difficult to, to be in that space for that length of time.
0: That, that would be my question, Francis. You were a Trappist monk, your life was being lived, much of it in in prayer and silence and in uh, spiritual exploration. Uh, had you been uh, a school teacher, a fireman, a doctor, and would have had an experience like that in church or maybe in, in nature or anywhere, do you think the experience would have been more confusing for you? Because I assume that because of your background in spirituality, you... you Frame that experience within the context of a spiritual insight or development. But if you were uh, uh, just a guy on the street and that experience came to you, do you think it would have been more confusing? Who knows? It was confusing enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) You
2: know, um, I I don't know. My sense is that life unfolds sort of the way it's meant to. And to, like a, a sort of uh, theoretical sort of question like that is hard to answer because if I had been a fireman or a, I have a lot of fireman relatives, actually, interestingly, uh-huh. but um if I had been a fireman or a policeman or a father with, you know, 12 kids or something, uh, I'm sure I would have experienced that different but differently, but, you know, I wasn't that, so mm-hmm. hard to say you know, what would have been the, the kind of ramifications of that in a different context? But. Well,
1: what was the um, experience like uh, with your fellow monks? Did you have anybody you could discuss it with? How did they react to your uh, description of it, if you, if you in fact, described it at all?
2: Oh, yeah, I did describe it, and um, my spiritual director said it would be good for me to write, to journal about it, because at first I actually couldn't even speak about it for... Mm a while, it was very clear I'd had some kind of experience, and when I was, like, scheduled to preach, I would get up to preach, and uh, all my—I I would I would usually carefully prepare for sermons and things and teachings, because I taught—I did work with novices, and I taught in, in the monastery and things, and um, all my preparation would just fly out the window, and I couldn't—I literally got up one time, I remember, soon after that, and I was supposed to do a read, you know, and preach— and i start and i read the go- I went up to read the gospel, and when I looked at the at the at the lectern and looked at the the gospel written there, it looked like just bits of like scratchings on a paper i couldn't even i couldn't like my mind would not make words into it it was very strange, and I'd have notes there and I wouldn't be able to read them, so I just speak sort of extemporaneously, and people would be very moved and it would really have an effect and my preaching and um, my ministry in general kind of uh, took on a different sort of aspect altogether and uh, something was really flowing through me. So the other brothers in the, in my community could sense that I had had, you know, and they felt I'd had some kind of mystical experience or something, but for a long time I couldn't speak about it until my spiritual director said, well, you need to write about this because, maybe your on your, your greater understanding of it on a level where you can articulate it could be helpful to others and mm. so I began writing, and then out of that, uh, after about a year, I, I wrote in little uh, notebooks and would give it to him when i 'd see him once a month and After about a year of that, he said, "I think you have a book here, <laughs> and yeah. so we got together and sort of edited it and organized it into chapters and then this book, I am that I am." Uh, was my first book, and that's how it was written. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't even written as a book. It was just a journal, and then it kind of morphed into a book.
1: Uh, it sounds that, like
2: you had a good
1: support system um, of, of people who uh, were understanding of, uh, of an experience that might have lay a little bit outside
2: their own uh, framework. Yeah, I think a lot of monks in contemplative monasteries have very deep mystical experiences and even awakenings uh, they might speak about it differently they speak about it as Christians would speak about it but um, but I think they have a lot of them have a really deep authentic experience so mm-hmm. it wasn't like I was you know that, that none of them had ever been exposed to any kind of experience like that so mm-hmm. I did get support but then I also got a little challenge from people uh, when I finally got the, the, the journals into book form uh, there was a theologian that got a hold of my of it and read it, and uh, I had a meeting with him, and he met with the brothers in the monastic community I was in, and, um, and he came, and then, and then we were talking about publishing it, and he said, well, he said, I, I, I think you've had an authentic mystical experience, but really the way you're articulating it here would be considered pantheistic. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> mm-hmm. if you want to publish it under, you know, and remain a religious then you have to, uh, you have to adapt it a little bit, and uh, and I uh, couldn't do that, and uh, so for a while it wasn't published. But then eventually I left monastic life, and and it did get published. So
0: when you left, so I did get support, but I also got a little bit of challenge here and there. Francis, when you left monastic life, uh, did you have the support of the uh, community of monks you were living with? And then when you left. Did you seek out other teachers or writings that would help uh, you uh, further understand your own experience? Uh,
2: Yeah, I did have their support. I mean, when I left, I actually was given a fairly uh, large sum of money to help me get started out. And uh, I was able to have enough to buy a car and sort of settle myself. And, um, but yeah, I did seek out, uh, some other people and, um, just to kind of talk to that I thought may have had similar experiences, and um, that was supportive and affirming. Um, you know, I was when I was still in the monastery, I was kind of looking for some um, someone else who might have some understanding of what had happened to me. And you know, I like I said, I'd studied Vipassana and Zen, so the idea of awakening or like even to talk about enlightenment or that kind of thing was not really. Um, a new concept for me. Uh, but then when you actually go through something like that, it's very different than <laughs> what you, what you kind of imagine it will be like, uh, you know, when you kind of fantasize about it. So
1: interesting. How much, um, did you subsequently investigate the, um, Advaita and, uh, non-dual Buddhist traditions and, and how much, did they
2: inform your subsequent work? Well, the non-dual Buddhist traditions I had been investigating for over 20 years. So (laughs) that wasn't like a a new thing for me. I'd studied with Zen masters, I'd studied with asana, meditation masters, and even ordained, very controversially, (laughs) ordained for a year in a temporary ordination in the Theravadan tradition uh, when I was still a Christian monk. Mm. So that was a little bit, a lot of Christian monks have done that with Zen, but no one had done that with Vipassana, but I I did. And um, so those, and I was even teaching Vipassana, I'd been asked to teach Vipassana in in the Theravadan tradition. And so um, I was pretty familiar with a lot of the Buddhist ideas. Um, The Advaita thing, three years before that, I had run across this pamphlet in French. I was in a French community at the time. Uh, in Montreal, and I ran across this um, little pamphlet, um, Nanyar, Who Am I?, by Ramana Maharshi. And I had read that, and I was really struck by how similar it was to contemplative prayer, that self-investigation, or Atmavachara that Ramana talked about, was for me essentially resting and like looking at or gazing at the sense of awareness or presence that's within us, and a contemplative prayer is a kind of contemplative gazing at the presence of God that's within us. And so I really saw them as essentially the same practice. And uh, for three years before this big shift happened in 2010, I'd say between 2007 and 2010, I was doing very, very intensive uh, self-investigation practice and kind of a blend of, of the contemplative prayer practice and self-investigation. So it was sort of self investigation with a devotional kind of quality to it, you could say, and I think that was part of the impetus that sort of pushed me over that edge. So I had already done a good bit of investigation into Eastern and been involved in Buddhist Christian dialogue with a lot of Tibetan and Zen monks and over many, many years so uh, that those those things were those teachings weren't really new to me, but I resonated a lot more, I'd say with the Buddhist actual teachings on an on a actual kind of teaching level, I'd say I resonated more with the Buddhist teachings. And then um, also um, I would say uh, in my teaching now, I really do draw on uh, Christian mysticism and Buddhist teaching quite a bit. And I always attribute it to, you know, Buddhist teaching if I borrow some teaching of the Buddha. But I, in my retreats and work and my work with individuals, I still, use a lot of things from both Christian mystical traditions and uh, Buddhist traditions.
0: Francis, uh, do you still consider yourself a Christian? And what, what differentiates a, a Christian in your mind from a, from a, from a Buddhist or, or, or a Hindu or any other religion for that matter? And as a Christian, do you feel, if you, you still feel as one, do you feel it's still your role to proselytize and try to get people to that faith?
2: First of all, uh, it's not my role to proselytize in any way, shape, or form. So, <laughs> I'm just uh. to make that really clear, right? From the um, I guess I would still consider myself a Christian in a certain way, but I'm not really a traditional Christian mm-hmm. anymore. And um, most of my theology has long flown out the window, even though I have degrees in theology. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I guess I'm kind of a hybrid Christian Buddhist or something, or a Buddhist Christian. I'm not sure, so uh yeah, I'm kind of an odd bird, as my dad used to say <laughs> how did how does um
1: the uh experience, your life in as a whole post two thousand ten uh changed um your understanding of who Jesus was or your relationship to him um if it had
2: changed at all oh yeah, it's changed tremendously, i think for You know, I I, I held to traditional theology a lot of my life, and so I believed that Jesus was the second person of the Holy Trinity and that uh, he died for our sins and rose again and and that we believed in him and he was our path to eternal life and basic Christian beliefs. And then uh, gradually over time, and then really clinching it after 2010, I would no longer see Jesus as an exclusive divine person, but I I think he had a revelation of his own divinity. But my sense is that, my intuitive sense in reading between the lines of the extant Mm -hmm. sort of literature documents we have of Jesus' teaching, uh, I would say what he was pointing to is what all awakened beings point to, which is that we're all divine, that we're all um, really God in, in the flesh, which is what is attributed to him, but that he wasn't attributing that exclusively to himself, but to all Everyone, right? Fra- that's Fra- the way I would understand
0: it, Francis. I, I watched your interview on uh with Rick Archer, uh, who by the way is a friend of Phil and mine, uh, on a boot at the gas pump. And, and one of the things uh, you discussed was uh, I think Rick might have put you in touch with a gentleman that had a, a, an experience of awakening, much like yours, and how you found it very useful to speak to somebody who had a, a similar uh experience, yeah. Yeah, there were several people that
2: I was uh got into contact with after that and uh and then eventually I um got to meet and became friends with uh Adyashanti. And um so there's been any number of people and then since then just uh since I've been teaching in this sort of uh spiritual scene, I guess for lack of a better term, uh I've met a lot of different teachers some of whom I feel like I have a lot in common with and some maybe not as much. So. Um, let's, uh, let's pursue that a little bit. There's a, there
1: are a lot of people on the contemporary spiritual circuit uh, teaching in the name of non-dualism and Advaita, and um, they are not by any means uh, uniform. What is it you find uh, different? Uh, f- in those who uh, you said some, some are different from how you approach things or how you see things, um, which is not what people might expect from uh, people in, who all uh, hold to some non-dualism because they were to think it would be non-dual <laughs> and, yeah. and therefore uniform in how it's perceived and expressed. What,
2: what it, what it, where do you take exception to? Um, I guess that I would probably um, see my own understanding and my own path as it's unfolded to be more in line with a lot of the more classical sort of Advaita stuff I've I've read and, and been exposed to, and certainly classical Buddhist non-dual stuff, where I, I really feel... Um, that um, there's a full circle of awakening. I I, I I have a teaching that I actually talk a lot about lately, and I call it full circle awakening. So my sense is that there is a transcendent movement where we awaken up and out of, of a merely human identification. So we we come to understand in that awakening that we're not merely that we're not primarily or merely or exclusively, a body, a mind, a human personality, and so on, that, that there's a dimension of pure spirit or consciousness that is the, the, the kind of essence of who we are. And we do awaken to that. But I would say that there's a kind of continuing um, uh, journey of awakening that actually eventually, uh, um, I, I talk about even an awakening from awakening, that we awaken from this sense of transcendence, uh, kind of exclusive transcendence, and we actually wake down and into uh, a kind of embodiment of, of uh, what it means to be an awakened person uh, living in a human life. And so we, Im- we learn to embody it in the world and we integrate ordinary everyday life into awakened consciousness. So it's not just a matter of like waking, waking up and out of the merely human and, and just then hanging out in transcendence and, and just forgetting the world and forgetting your body and not identifying with any of it. But it's like a waking up and out of that and then waking back down and into it, but with a completely different perspective. So we navigate it then mm-hmm. from an absolute perspective, but we, and we realize it's only relatively real. It's not absolutely or ultimately real, but, it's, but it all has the, the, the life of the body, the life of the world, the phenomenal reality all around us, nature and all that, that it all is, in, in a certain sense, a manifestation of the divine, of consciousness. And so it's all divine, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of radically contingent upon the reality of consciousness or, or God or whatever you want to call that, but it's, it's not excluded from that. So I think a lot of the, the contemporary non-dual teaching really is a little lopsided in emphasizing transcendence, and not so much um, has it really entered into a kind of more integrated uh, sort of expression of that. Then I would say so. I'd say that's probably my my major uh, place of departure from maybe a lot of contemporary like neo non-dual sort of teachers. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Francis, I wanted to ask about the work uh, I read you've done with in hospice with the sick and dying. Yeah. Uh, since your transformative experience, since your experience of awakening, uh, how has that changed your your work around people that are making that transition from life to death? And, and what do you think happens after a person's body is finished and and, and it is no more?
2: Yeah, I would say. Um it did change my experience. I was still doing that work after that time for a period of time. And, um, I would say the primary thing that I did after that was just, um, the way I ministered to people who were in the dying sort of experience or process would be to just create a a space for them, like to just be present to them and that, and to let presence itself sort of touch their lives and, and, um, and bring healing, you know, to their hearts and minds. And um, so it really did become a, a very powerful work for me to do in light of my sort of awakening. It felt like it was much more powerful after that. And I still actually am called into situations where people are dying. I think a lot of my students, you know, they know that I did that kind of work. And so if they have a dying loved one or something, sometimes i had uh, the opportunity to visit them and and talk with them, and so and, and then what happens after we die? Is that was that second yes. part of your question? Yes.
0: Yeah, that's a who knows, you know. Mm. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it's a uh, good answer. It's I mean, good, I have my own an honest
2: answer. Yeah. I have my own ideas and beliefs about mm-hmm. that. But if I talked about that, then you'd have some sense of my ideas and beliefs. But I, I guess. You know, that might be useful for you, or it might be confusing. Mm. So it's sort of like, my sense is that, well, you know, after we die, then we'll know, won't we?
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Until that
2: time, it's all theory and guesswork and beliefs and,
1: you know.
0: (laughs) Well well put. um,
1: The the life of uh, a Christian uh, monk, or a devout Christian who's not a monk... Um, is, is, is often a very devotional one uh, centered on, uh, uh, on love of Jesus or Mary or, or whatever. Um, do you, as a sort of person uh, embody, who's embodying a non-dual uh, experience of the world and teaching it, do you retain a devotional life and how does that fit into the notion of non-dualism, or as a lot of non-dual people reject the notion that there's anything to even be devoted to.
2: Yeah, I would say that's primarily a neo-western non-dual spin yeah. on that teaching. If you go to India, and you t- or you talk to some people who were uh, like Ramana Maharshi, or even the founder of Advaita Vedanta, Shankara, they were highly devotional people.
1: That's right. Was, you
2: know, Shankara wrote hymns to the Divine Mother. Ramana had great devotion to the mountain Arunanchala, and circled it and sang hymns of devotion. And and when his devotees sang hymns to uh, Shiva and so on, he would have he would dissolve into tears. So I think the idea that non-duality is somehow incompatible with devotion is just a a kind of Western dumbing down of the (laughs) tradition, Mm -hmm. because I I really don't think you find that in the classical Advaita tradition. No, you don't. Uh,
0: Francis, could you tell us and our listeners uh, about some of the work you're doing now if they want to follow up and find out more about your activities?
2: Well, I have this uh, website, Finding Grace
0: at the Center, which
2: is, kind of become the organization there's been a little sort of formation of an organization kind of around me to help me with my work organizing retreats and things which I'm not especially good at doing (laughs) (laughs) some people showed up Uh some people showed up on the scene and decided to help me thank goodness so um so if they go to my website my events and things so I do retreats and go around the country and do retreats and I go to Europe actually a lot too, and do retreats in England and Ireland
1: we, we, we should far, say that the website is finding
0: grace at the center yep that's it and that'll be yep. do, you, do you teach uh, any spiritual techniques to people taking these or any techniques of uh, uh, of insight that you, you would recommend to people
2: well yeah I mean I, I do uh, I guess uh, I divide my sort of teaching uh, approach on on sadhana or spiritual practice into three basic practices that I that have been part of my own spiritual journey. And I think you can find these three practices in all the classical spiritual paths in one form or another. And so I talk a lot about meditation, surrender, and service, selfless service in the world. And I think it's a lot like I often compare it to If you want to get fit, I was pretty involved in athletics in high school and stuff. And so had to get conditioned to to do wrestling and track and things like that. So if you're on a kind of fitness regime, you actually do work with your diet. You do anaerobic exercise and aerobic exercise like, you know, for cardiovascular health and so on. And they each answer different kind of needs of your body uh, to help you get a kind of integrated and holistic approach to optimal kind of physical condition and I think the same with spirituality if you have these three practices they in different ways they address spiritual needs so meditation uh, helps us kind of get more in touch with this consciousness that does dwell already within us beneath the surface of our lives and surrender I see as a kind of practice that that puts us uh, gives us access to that same consciousness in the midst of challenging situations in life so I often talk about surrender as being meditation in action and and then service really flows out of uh, wisdom if we have a non-dual insight that okay I'm one with everything there's no separation there's no separate entity here but I'm really actually one with all that exists then we act accordingly you know we we when when somebody's in pain when the world is in need of cleaning up and the environment needs help or when animals are being abused or when there's war or stillness, you know, it touches our heart because we're not separate from that, you know? So I think, um, non-dual wisdom just naturally gives rise to service. So I talk about those three practices as the path. That's probably a kind of balanced path that could work for Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people. So that's the way I sort of present that,
1: Francis. We're running out of time now. Um, I want to uh, again repeat your that your um, website is finding grace at the center dot com. You also have a very active uh, Facebook presence. I always enjoy yeah. uh, seeing what you post there, and uh, I want to refer uh, listeners to your interviews with our friend Rick Archer on. Uh, Buddha at the Gas Pump, which is yeah. Batgap, B-A-T-G-A-P dot com, where they'll find uh, longer and more extended uh, detailed interviews with you because uh, Rick goes much longer than we do. Uh,
0: and, uh, yeah.
1: and they can find that at uh, the link to past interviews. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before we have to go?
2: Huh, well... Um. Hmm. <laughs> nothing's popping into my head, but I would. I guess I would just say, you know, follow your heart in life and your heart will lead you to your kind of ultimate meaning, and uh, I've found that, that that works, that's
0: worked for me, I think. <laughs> so that would be my kind of basic advice. Great, thank, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on. We've been chatting with uh, Francis Bennett, former Trappist Monk and now uh, uh, a uh, teacher uh, leading people in a direction of of greater self-knowledge and and, uh, spirituality. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks, Francis.